the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through, here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, congrats on the Jets getting uh, hard knocks. Last time we got hard knocks, it didn't turn out too well, actually. It turned out very funny uh, for me. Yeah. <laughs> that was the year that everybody thought the Jets were going to like make a Super Bowl run and wasn't to be. Hard knocks for everyone who hates this part of the podcast is when HBO goes behind the scenes with an NFL team during training camp. And even if you don't like football, it's very fun because it's just like... Yeah, it's like a reality show. Yeah, yeah. it's like human interest stories. Yeah. Like, you know, Antonio Cromartie with like five kids or whatever. Yeah. It's like fun... Fun stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rex Ryan, Pete behind the coach. Well, yeah, we had like a kind of sociopathic coach, uh, <laughs> Rex Ryan, who's kind of fun to watch too. So. Fun to watch. Uh, big, uh, big foot guy. Yes. Um, anyway, Ben. It's, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be back. Go- Google it. Uh, yeah, Google or maybe it. don't. Maybe don't. Yeah, maybe don't Google that. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, it was fun listening to you and Max last week. Covered a lot of ground. Uh, we're going to talk about the latest news from Ukraine, including Russia pulling out of this really important initiative that keeps uh, food flowing around the world. We're going to talk about Republican 2024 candidates and their foreign policy views and these wacky defense votes in the House of Representatives, climate change, uh, fears of another genocide in Darfur, China's missing foreign minister, how Iran is up to lots of terrible things, uh, the EU and migration in Tunisia, and some fun news out of Australia. What else? They only do fun stuff for us these days. Ben Ben, I talk with Amir Tibone from Haaretz about uh, Netanyahu's judicial coup and Biden inviting Bibi Netanyahu to Washington. That was very well pronounced. You know, yeah. I think I did it better. Pronounced, pronounced. Uh, pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> the, the heat, the climate change is getting in my head. But yeah. It is quite yeah. hot. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a he's a great guy. Also, there's this fascinating story that Haaretz posted today about uh, Trump apparently taking a bunch of priceless Israeli antiquities and hoarding them at Mar-a-Lago. It's a great. You know, it's a great. It's a great follow, Haaretz. You know, like it's, yeah. it's you know, if, if only that was the entire Israeli media ecosystem. You exactly, know? exactly. I'm a subscriber. Quick housekeeping, Ben. If you guys live in Los Angeles, come join me at a book event with Lydia Kiesling. She's the author of Kirkland Media's first book and print book, Mobility. Uh, I finished Mobility last week when I was off. Uh, it is great. It was a really fun read. I literally read it on the beach. But Ben, I think you'll also like it because... Lydia is obviously a novelist, and she's telling this like fun coming-of-age story about a kid growing up in a house where her parents worked in the Foreign Service, and then she ends up in Texas working in the oil industry. And it, you know, it was this cool way to like weave the impact of climate change and the tentacles of this industry into this human story about a girl and a family. It's also, you know, she reports on really recent history, like its history though, like 2013, 2016. There's like Obama references. It's very. It made me feel a little old, but it's a great book. I mean, I love that you got the first like crooked read to be so infused with totally. Waldo themes. Uh, right up our alley. I mean, this is this is something that everybody yeah. needs to check it, out. It starts yeah. in Baku. 
Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, how many things start in Baku <laughs> that you've read recently? Right? Like that's, Nothing good. But it's always entertaining, actually. Baku is a fascinating place. I but, would like to go there. I yeah. was then more thinking of the treatment I, of the Armenians. But well, yes, that. July 27th, Dynasty Typewriter, Los Angeles. Come hang out. I'll be there. I'll, I th- I'll check that out. All right, yeah, great. Let's do it. Come up, let's just go. bum rush the stage. We'll yeah. do a big <laughs> yeah, Baku yeah. off. Um, so... Lots of news out of Ukraine, Ben. Uh, you and Max talked about the Biden administration's decision to send clustered munitions to Ukraine last week. I saw that those munitions have already arrived, so they're probably in theater right now. Probably no coincidence either that this comes as concerns about the pace or the the you know slow pace of the Ukrainian offensive um, are growing. You're hearing you know people in Washington and now generals in Ukraine kind of expressing some frustration. The Ukrainians also have once again attacked the Kerch Strait Bridge, which is a bridge that connects Russia to Crimea. The Russians say Ukraine used a, a drone boat in the attack, which uh, it's become their kind of like go-to low-cost way for the attacking and screwing with the Russian Navy. Shortly after this attack, the Russians announced that they will stop participating in the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which is the deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey that allowed Ukraine to ship its grain around the world. Uh, Ukrainian grain, as we've talked about, is critical to global supplies, especially in Asia and Africa. The UN says up to 783 million people faced chronic hunger in 2022, and that this initiative reduced food prices by over 23% uh, since March 2022. But you know, wheat prices once again rose after this news, so not great. So Ben, a, a lot going on here. Um, but one thing we talked about a lot on the show is how there is a Western US Europe narrative about the war where mm. Ukraine is the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys who invaded them. And then there's a lot of other countries that believe a more complicated take on what's happening. They're more amenable to, to hearing out Russian propaganda uh, or blaming the US for this war. It seems to me though that Putin pulling out of this grain initiative creates some real risk for him if prices spike because they kind of did it flamboyantly, right? They announced they were pulling out. I'm wondering if the, you think that's true and if you can get messengers like Tayyip Erdogan, the prime minister of Turkey, to lead the messaging and kind of, you know, punch back a little bit here. I mean, I, I'm not sure because I think that Putin may be calculating that there is such sympathy for his narrative in Africa and parts of the global south mm-hmm. that even with the kind of clear responsibility on his shoulders for pulling out of this, it's the the war itself that people blame for the food shortages and yeah. high food prices. Yeah. I noticed like in the run up to it, he was doing some calls. He did a call with the president of South Africa. Of I'm sure what he was doing was blaming uh, the United States, the West for making this like a proxy war. And we should say they, they want like off some sanctions lists. They want a, a right. Russian bank reconnected to the global SWIFT system, I think. So they have some demands. They have some demands and South Africa has been kind of caught in the middle here. But I think he might be calculating that, look, Russia and China and others are doing a lot of work to kind of pin the blame for the war on the U.S. and NATO uh, who are often viewed with some mistrust in the global South, and that their basic argument, the Russian argument, is like the Zelensky could end the war, they're the ones prolonging it, because yeah. you know, frankly, what they'd like is probably for there to be some kind of ceasefire where they get to keep all this land that they're occupying. That's, I think, what he's betting on. He may want to just test that proposition for a bit of time. Remember, it took some time to get the grain initiative up and running in yeah, the first place, yeah. and it's, was, it was delayed a couple of times. So he may be taking a few weeks to kind of see how this news is received um, around the world. To your point, I think what's going to be really important is not just for the U.S. to be delivering the message that, hey, 
uh, this grand initiative was working. Putin's the guy who's pulled out of it. Like pressure needs to be put on him internationally to to go back into it. But that you get other messengers. You yeah. know, sure, the UN Secretary General Erdogan, but also hopefully, ideally, you can find some credible people um, in Africa and other places that may may not want to take the Ukrainian side in the war, but might want to put a little bit more pressure on Putin to to come back into this. So, best case scenario, I think is. You know, Putin tests the waters and finds what you said that, you know, some people are like, wait, what are you doing here? This is working. Um, the worst case scenario is this starts to work for him. Other countries are like, what's going on? Why are you guys pulling all these weapons in Ukraine? They, they start to be on the, the Tucker Carlson line, you know, yeah. and and we don't know. I don't know. I, to your question, like, I, it's hard to say which way this will break, because I think there'll be sympathy uh, for the argument that NATO is prolonging the war, but there'll also be frustration with Putin for pulling out. And it's incumbent on the U.S. and all of our allies and, and others uh, to drive home the message that, look, whatever you think about the war, this thing was working. There's global food shortages. Climate, which we're talking, we're going to talk about, is going to exacerbate that. Yeah. There's conflicts in Sudan. There's all kinds of reasons why this is the worst time to do yeah, this. Yeah, it's terrible, terrible timing. Um, speaking of the cost of war, uh, Medusa, one of the last remaining Russian independent news outlets, reported that they believe the true number of Russian soldiers killed since the beginning of the war is 47,000, 10 times the Kremlin estimate. And they estimate that 125,000 Russians were so badly injured that they can't return to military service. It's just like an enormous growing cost to the Russian people now in addition to it that there will be this higher food prices for the globe, basically. Yeah. And I wonder also about the, the, on the cost piece, like the wounded, it's a very high number. This is like a pretty ugly war, right? It's like a, you know, frontline artillery war. These must be pretty bad wounds. These people are going to be returning to communities, tens of thousands of essentially, you know, newly disabled Russians. And so the war may become much more visible inside of Russia. Obviously, it's visible when you lose somebody. But when suddenly you have a huge influx of disabled veterans, that's going to create its own strength. Yeah, we can't go back to work necessarily exactly. if they were farmers. Yeah. Uh, but Medusa, I think they were literally like having people go to cemeteries, counting graves. They built a model to try to figure out these, this cost is pretty amazing. Um, one more sort of Russia flag before we move on to uh, Republicans in Ukraine. We talked a bunch of times about uh, Evan Gershkovich, the, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was arrested in Russia. He's been held hostage now for more than three months. Uh, his parents recently met with President Biden. The White House said they were in touch with the Russians about a possible prisoner swap, though nothing uh, decided yet, no deal done yet. And then just for those interested in more, the Wall Street Journal did a fascinating piece about the FSB unit that has been spying on, harassing Americans and uh, arrested Evan in Russia. That's worth reading. That's really worth reading. It was a really good piece, Um, you know, because this this unit is like grown in, in stature and aggression in recent years and basically exists to kind of target... Westerners in Russia or sometimes outside of Russia. The one thing I'd say in all the reporting is that the Russians are trying to negotiate some kind of spy swap, Mm -hmm. which is hard for the U.S. because we rightly don't see Evan as a spy. Exactly. And so that's going to be a barrier to clear. And then they'll probably ask for some like horrible person, like the the person in Germany who like murdered somebody. And so look, it's going to, this is what's going to happen. The pressure is going to build over the coming months and the Biden people will probably be left with some pretty bad choices here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, Ben, over the weekend, uh, speaking of bad choices, there was a big Christian conservative coalition event <laughs> in Iowa uh, called the Family Leadership Summit. It's, it's what we call a cattle call event, right? You have a bunch of Republicans. They come in. They all speak over the course of the day to the same audience. So this year, the organization had Tucker Carlson come in to host a fireside chat, his natural uh, setting, with 2024 uh, primary candidates, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy. We talked about this a bit on Positive America Tuesday, but I want to dig in deeper with you because 
foreign policy was so front and center because Tucker Carlson was like, I don't give a shit about any of the Christian conservative stuff you guys want me to talk about, yeah. like abortion or, or gay rights. I'm here to talk about why supporting Ukraine is really bad. So we want to listen to a couple of clips to give you guys a flavor of this thing and talk about the implications. So the first one is Mike Pence trying <laughs> to make the case for supporting Ukraine. The answer is not to shrink from America's role as leader of the free world. The answer is to invest in our national defense. I really do believe that. Look, remember, in a year and a half, and, and again, we have a strong disagreement on Oh, I'm not sure we do. That's okay. Well, that'd be great if we didn't. <laughs> but let me, let me say to you, we've made real progress there. Look, a year and a half ago, Russia had the second most powerful military in the world. Today, they have the second most powerful military in Ukraine. All right? That's progress. So you could hear two people clapping there? Yeah. So, Ben, that could have been a Ronald Reagan speech or a Joe Biden speech, right? I mean, that's kind of like that's your mainstream foreign policy on yeah. this issue, at least. Yeah, yeah. I, first of all, like I always have to kind of pull back any temptation to feel any sympathy for Mike Pence whatsoever. I know, it's hard. As a man, you know, who was almost hanged uh, on January 6th um, and is now like, you know, trying to defend uh, Ukraine in front of a hostile audience. But the, the question that comes out is like, well... If you think that, like, how did you stand there for four years gazing adoringly at Donald Trump as he cozied up to Putin and, part, and, yeah. and leaned on Zelensky, right, in yeah. his first impeachment, right, to, for dirt on Joe Biden. That said, I, I think, like, you're right to flag this because, it, look, it's it's interesting to observe um, this kind of fissure in the Republican Party is really intense. I mean, this is going to be a problem for them from now till Election Day because yeah. whatever that weirdo MAGA audience is in Iowa... There's a good chunk of Republicans. Those are my people. But yeah, yeah you, sure. I, I mean, not the not the MAGA people. I mean, <laughs> no, they're not at all. You, you, that is yeah. like the most right wing evangelicals yeah. out there. You, you are the one who once guided me as a speechwriter to write the line uh, for Barack Obama: "The only Washington insiders I listened to in developing my rural policy were the Washington insiders in Washington County, Iowa." Goddamn so right. That's the kind of local are, politics are, that we used to do in Iowa. Weekly papers. Now it's national politics, I guess, or yep. international politics. Yep. But the, the 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 challenge for them is going to be like there are always going to be kind of traditional national defense hawkish anti-Russian people in the Republican Party. Like even Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump cannot evict that portion of the party, and yet. What's notable to me is not only is there a growing number that are like where Tucker is, they don't like the war, they don't like supporting Ukraine, they don't like sending money over there, they're sympathetic to Putin, but also like it's like the number one issue. It, like, and, and this is what, why it's worth it watching. Animates them. Yeah, this is not like a the the fourth. I th even for Democrats who support Ukraine, it's actually usually not like the number one issue for no. why they're supporting Joe Biden. Like for Tucker. For Elon Musk and the PayPal brigades, uh, for RFK Jr. to some extent, for for that whole milieu over there, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. We'll get to him in a second. Yeah, th those people are like this is like actually their top issue. This is driving their campaign, and yeah. so they're going to move voters. Like they're they, we've seen their capacity to shape how people think, and this is going to be a real civil war inside the Republican and it's Party. The, it's the PayPal flag officers, okay? Please sorry, give sorry. them respect. So uh, <laughs> this is Tucker Carlson responding to Pence later on in this little uh, fireside chat when Pence is trying to criticize Biden for being weak, for being too slow and sending weapons to Ukraine, specifically uh, the Abrams tanks. You Thanks are distressed notice. that the Ukrainians don't have enough American tanks. Every city in the United States has become much worse 
over the past three years. Yeah. Drive around. There's not one city that's gotten better in the United States. Right. And it's visible. Our economy has degraded. The suicide rate has jumped. Public filth and disorder and crime have exponentially increased. Right. And yet, your concern is that the Ukrainians, a country most people can't find on a map, who've received tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars, don't have enough tanks. Right. I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's the concern for the United States in that? Well, it's not my concern. That kind of America yeah. first sentiment was very prevalent with a lot of these guys. There was a lot of, we need to secure our border before we secure Ukraine's border, et cetera. But you could, I mean, to your point earlier, this is a bunch of like right-wing Christian evangelicals getting pretty fired up yeah. about not wanting to help Ukraine, a country being slaughtered by a bunch of Russians. Yeah, really fired up. I mean, in a way, like if you listen to Tucker, you kind of see the potency of that argument. Oh, yeah, it's powerful. As much as he's like full of shit about Democrats like, used it and crime. on Iraq. We should be building firehouses here, not over in Iraq. That was yeah, a John Kerry, like, John Kerry line. Yeah. It was like a biggest applause line in John Kerry stump. And like, first of all, this is kind of like to, to nerd out for a second. Like this is the Republican Party actually kind of going back to its kind of like pre-World War II, yeah. like isolationist, anti-Semitic roots, yeah. right? America First was a thing and it was a Republican thing. Like Father Tom Coughlin, yes. the broadcaster who was like Tucker Carlson before there was Tucker Carlson, was traveling around the country saying FDR was a warmonger for doing like Lend-Lease with the Brits. And like, you know, so this is, this is not actually new. This is something that's like deep embedded in yep. like right-wing American politics, this isolationism. And I also think that a lot of these evangelicals to be, I guess, sympathetic to them, were lied to about Iraq for so long. And so they all got on board the Bush train after 9-11. We're going to go liberate all these people. It's going to be great. Um, and they feel like they got a raw deal here. Yep. And so I think they're wrong. <laughs> I obviously think we should be supporting Ukraine. But I don't think we should dismiss this as much as Tucker is a crackpot anti-Semite. That doesn't mean that this message won't travel. And it's going to split the Republican Party. And if, assuming Trump's the nominee, it's going to become the position of the Republican Party. Like that's going to be the that that language exactly is going to be used by the nominee of the Republican Party in the middle of the war. And that's going to give Putin incentive to wait out like yeah. to the election. It's going to it is going to impact the actual war. So. And, and to continue your sort of rock comparison here, like a lot of what some of these candidates who support supporting Ukraine say is, look, we got to stop them there so they don't roll into Poland or yeah. NATO country basically we have to take the fight to them over there before it becomes here that that sounds just like the war on terror and al-qaeda and, and all the arguments you heard back in the day so to your point i do think people are kind of tired of this shit and they're like i don't know maybe a charles Lindberghian argument sounds kind of compelling it's certainly yeah. simple and it does it, it it puts the onus on people to look i i think you have to make a values-based argument uh, to support the ukrainians because sometimes you know i think i mentioned this to you tommy like i was on some panel with like uh friend of the pod, Brett Stevens, mm -hmm. where, where, where he was making this kind of really robust argument that like Biden should be doing more and he should go around the country and tell people why this is important. And he, he said the argument he wanted to take out in the country was like, if we don't stop in Ukraine, they're going to end up in Paris. <laughs> and I was like sitting next to him. I was like, come on, buddy. Yeah, hey, I was like, come on, man. Like that's a, I, Americans are not stupid. Like the, the Russian tanks aren't going to roll into Paris. Like, so you have to make a different argument that is rooted in values. It's rooted in the fact that like if, if Putin wins here, like the whole you know project of European security collapses, that's bad for us. Like Putin's a disruptor. It's not an easy, it's actually a harder argument, 
It's not as clean as Tucker's argument. No, way, not even close. Know? Not even close. And, yeah. and so to your point, like, so this final clip is Vivek Ramaswamy, who's like a 12-year-old businessman who has spent, uh, I think, 12 or $15 million already of his own money, says he's going to spend $100 million, but he's kind of, he hasn't caught fire, but of all the kind of no-name candidates has he's, done yeah. the best. He's yeah. come out of literally nowhere, and I think it's in part because he has Tucker-like views like this. Nearly our entire field is indistinguishable in practice from where Biden is on this, which is in an undefined, ill-defined way, pouring more money into a war that I think is destined to become Vietnam or Iraq all over again. And if you don't learn from the lessons of the past, you're gonna be making the same mistakes on an even larger scale going forward. We have to end this war. We can end this war and start prioritizing the interests of actual US citizens here at home. So I, I think, um, ju judging by the response you just got, I think a chunk of, I don't know what percentage, but a lot of primary, Republican primary voters agree with you. Not all, but a lot. I don't think any Republican donors agree with you. I think that's accurate. And I've lost, to be really honest with you, I've lost many large donors or prospective donors over this issue. And it puzzles me. Because I think the tempting thing to say is to have some conspiratorial explanation that they have money at stake and government contractors, Raytheon or whatever. I don't think that's true, actually. I think there's something else going on in the psychology of an establishment in both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party that is reluctant to the idea that we somehow can't be the ones fighting the war that's the popular war of the day, the politically correct war. I think there's no such thing as a politically correct war. So it's kind of fascinating what they do there. So Tucker yeah. makes this about the donor class versus the real people. Vivek makes this about elites and sort of woke things and telling you what to do and what's right to think and feel. And they're just sort of like folding these nativist arguments into all these other, I think, pretty powerful arguments to the Republican base. It's, it's I would be worried. I would be worried. I mean, I think the argument that you know, Biden and others will have to continue to make, though, is, is first of all, that there are no Americans in this war. <laughs> like, right. So the one way to differentiate from Iraq or Vietnam is to emphasize that Americans aren't in it. And by the way, the thing that Biden says that kind of irks the hawks is when he says, we're not going in this war. Like, we, we, I'm not going to get involved in this war. I'm setting limits on this. Yeah. We don't want to, to escalate. He should take from this the importance of continuing to do that. Yeah. Um, because that at least, you know, sets some distance between you and, and the chords that they're hitting there that are pretty powerful chords, Vietnam, Iraq, like there is a cost to the blob being so consistently wrong about these wars yep. uh, since World War II, you know? Yep. And this is obviously a very different conflict. It's not the United States military directly involved, but that, I mean, again, I don't like, I don't agree with the argument, but it's, it's, it, 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 it I wouldn't dismiss it. I, I mean, get the appeal. I get the appeal. Yeah. When Biden says, like, well, 3,000 more, uh, you know, guys are going to be ready to potentially be sent to Europe, that's very easily used to say, Slippery see, slope, look, you know, we're yeah, going to be yeah. in the war. Direct. I, I just, I would not dismiss this out of hand because, been. just because it, it, it thuds on cable news and with donor class and with editorial writers, like, People don't trust those people about foreign policy anymore. Yeah. Like this is something that I felt acutely when I was in government. Like yep. the, the the gatekeepers, and I'd like to think this podcast we try to have like at least more open conversations about this stuff, even if some of our views trend in that direction at times. But like people don't trust the gatekeepers of opinion on foreign policy. Yeah, understandably so. Yeah. And so Trump didn't attend that Iowa event, but he did do a Fox News hit with Maria Bartiromo, 
where he got, does. <laughs> asked about defending Taiwan. Here's a clip from that. The U.S. helped defend Taiwan if it means going to war with China? Well, I don't want to say it because if I'm in the position of president, I don't want to say what I'm thinking. You know, I just, if I, if I answer that question, it'll put me in a very bad negotiating position. Uh, with that being said, Taiwan did take all of our chip business. You know, we used to make our own chips. Now they're made in Taiwan. 90% of the chips Advanced are made in semiconductor Taiwan. chips, 90% are, no, are no, made they, in they Taiwan. Have, if they, China they make, goes in there, everything. they'll be able to turn the world on and off. Isn't that right? If China takes Taiwan, they will turn the world off, potentially. I mean, potentially. Uh, but remember this. Taiwan took, smart, brilliant, they took our business away. We should have stopped them. We should have taxed them. We should have tariffed them. It's just such a, like, that's sort of a vintage Trump take. Like, it's not anti-war, but it's certainly, I'm not going to uh, say the thing you all want me to say, which is like, we got Taiwan's back. And then he just randomly attacks them when the context is yeah, a, a yeah, Chinese yeah. invasion. And, and then alludes to the world being turned off, which, which I don't Right. Not but, sure what that switch is. Uh, but uh, I, I, look, I, again, this is a great, like, uh, curated uh, segment you've set up here, Tommy, because Trump is to Joe Biden's left on this now. Like, Joe right. Biden has said five <laughs> times, times something that U.S. presidents have never said before. He, Joe Biden has said on television repeatedly uh, in 60 Minutes and other interviews that he would come to the defense of Taiwan. That is no, not the position of Donald Trump. So on both Ukraine and China, um, Joe Biden is in the, in the hawkish position. Um, substantively, you know, like we can argue about that. It, it is a, it, politically, it's a bit of a, he a head spinning development in the sense that, you know, this is the Republican Party like really reorienting as it has been for a while now under Trump from its kind of Reagan-esque like we, you know, we want to be the hawks and on all this stuff. But I think it's a potentially... I don't know if it's a potentially difficult issue for for Joe Biden, because uh, I I, I'd much rather be saying, hey, these Republicans are nuts on China. They, they're obsessed with it. Me too. They're, they're going to get us into a war because I, and I actually believe that if you look at the kind of crazy shit that the Republicans propose in Congress, it's all about like arming Taiwan of the teeth and standing yeah. up to China yeah. and, and, and escalation. Trump, like, you know, whether he is being savvy about it or just blundered into it. Uh, is giving himself a, an argument to make that actually, you know, that's not the case. He's giving himself some space. Yeah. So y Ukraine and these forums aren't the only place where crazy Republican politics are impacting foreign policy. The House Republicans recently passed an $886 billion bill to authorize the national defense budget. We should just pause on that number. Yeah. $886 billion. That bill included amendments that would block a Pentagon policy that reimburses service members who have to travel to get abortion services. Uh, according to Politico, it also does the following. It, it muscled through proposals to end coverage of transition surgeries and hormone treatments for transgender troops, guts diversity and inclusion programs, and limit the specific flags that can be flown at military installations. Basically, they're trying to effectively ban the flying of the pride flag. Republican Bob Good of Virginia tried to defund a commission that was set up to rename army bases that were named after fucking Confederate generals and stuff. So, you know, meanwhile, in that same bill, Ben, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of all people, well, it actually makes sense for her. She tried to block the transfer of U.S. cluster bombs to Ukraine. That failed by a vote of 147 to 276. But back to your, like, everything is jumbled point. So just a few thoughts on this. Like, one, I don't know, 98 Republicans vote to support sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. 
less than half the caucus. I think that's relevant data point. Second, um, it does seem like this is just going to happen in every bill going forward, right? Like McCarthy doesn't control the caucus, so the Freedom Caucus folks will make this happen on every bill. But I do think the broader question for Democrats is, does this sort of stuff offend moderate voters, right? Like, will Republicans be able to maybe pick out individual amendments that they added that maybe their base likes or, or maybe do well with independents? Or do we think we can make the argument that most people just won't like playing politics with defense spending like this and just like inserting random shit into these debates a la Senator Tommy Tupperville holding yeah. up promotions for literally every military nominee because he too is trying to roll back these reimbursements for abortion services, which are necessary, by the way, because half the country, uh, half people, these people are serving in places where they can't get abortion services anymore because Roe v. Wade was overturned. I, I think this is a loser for them, you know, and I, I, you know, I was willing to entertain the potential potency of that Ukraine message, like all this stuff together for, and the Democrats need to yeah. wrap it all together. Like Tommy Tuberville holding up, you know, thousands of military promotions and then playing all this culture war politics in the NDAA. I don't think people like making military readiness a, a casualty of your culture war. Yeah, um, and, and, and look, the, the the marriage of abortion and these issues is is also it's like hugely it's, losing, people don't be. like what they've done on abortion and they don't like generally like inserting these culture wars into the military like this the reproductive health care keep in mind if you are a, a, a female service member you you don't get to choose where you're deployed right and you might <laughs> so, have to travel yeah. several states over to yeah, get so abortion services if you're sent to a base in one of these states that's passing a ban in florida like, it, it, the military cannot compromise on this it is not fair to like deploy someone to a base in a state that has an yeah. abortion ban and not provide care where they can fly somewhere to get an abortion that is insane that's a readiness issue cuz like people won't want to serve and by the way it's not just service members it's their families that yep. come with them yep. so democrats should stand firm on this and ultimately the NDA will pass. Like I don't. And they'll strip out all this crazy crap. They will. In the so side, so yeah. this is not like a case where even like the you know the debt ceiling. Like for some reason I'm, I have greater confidence in the Republicans just passing the defense bill than than, than uh, raising the debt ceiling. Normally I would too. Um, so I I have to think that maybe they'll like score some points with the people that like to consume content about the woke military. But like, I think this is a loser for them. I think Democrats should lean into this. I think people, the, the record showed under Trump when you started fucking around with the military and with veterans and insulting the military, like that's not a message that travels well in the United no. States, especially with the independent and swing voters of whom there are not many. The one thing I'd also say, Tommy, I was thinking about this. There's There is a lot of right-wing media now about how woke and terrible the military is. I kind of wonder if it's going to change the composition of the military. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> like, like we were coming in here and DeSantis was yelling about a recruiting crisis. Well, if there are people that are not signing up for the military now, they are probably people that watch like, you know, that content and they're probably like MAGA people. Yeah. So in a very bizarre way, the Republicans may be driving the U.S. military to the left. Oh, no. Um, Fewer yeah, Proud Boys yeah. enrolling in the military. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what Tommy Tupperville's thing about not white nationalists. Like, and I don't think that's the intention of the Biden policies, but it's the effect of this right-wing freakout. That's a really and good point. It's kind of interesting to think. I, I'm curious to look at the military five years from now and see if it's like, you know, More diverse, a yeah. little less MAGA.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, Ben, so speaking of uh, enormous threats to the U.S. and really everyone else, we've been experiencing record heat waves all over the world for the past few weeks. Scientists say that July 3rd through 5th were the Earth's hottest days on record since they've been recording. Uh, Europe is dealing with a huge heat wave, especially Spain and Italy. There's horrible fires in Spain, uh, Arizona. Today was the 19th consecutive day of temperatures over 110 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona. Tuesday was reportedly the 27th day of this year where Beijing uh, had recorded temperatures above 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So these are, it's a combination of climate change doing this and El Nino, which is the cyclical warming of the Pacific Ocean. But those heat waves were the backdrop for Biden's special envoy for climate change, John Kerry's trip to Beijing for meetings with his counterpart about climate. Kerry is pushing the Chinese to slow their release of greenhouse gases by curbing methane emissions and slowing the expansion of coal plants. The latter goal is not going well at all. Yeah. But you know, the challenge here, of course, is record temperatures mean these countries all want more energy. So they turn to coal because it's available and cheap to, uh, to power air conditioners, et cetera, and things just get worse. So the data suggests that China is actually uniquely susceptible 
to climate change. It will impact them worse than a lot of other places, Beijing in particular. So the U.S. is responsible for 15% of yearly global emissions. Uh, really stopping global warming will require action from India, China, Europe, everybody. But, you know, the Chinese in particular are building a lot of coal fire plants with the Indians. Did you see any positive signs coming out of Kerry's meetings or any other part of it? I, the fact of him going, I thought was positive. Yeah. Um, this is the one issue where the U.S. and China should be able to find a way to work together. It's, you know, in the Obama years, we were able to kind of compartmentalize it and make progress on it, even when there were some tensions in other areas. This Chinese government feels less willing to do that, less willing to kind of compartmentalize climate separate from other tensions. But the fact that they had him there is a step forward. And hopefully, even if he can make incremental progress on something like methane, that would help. This coal issue is a huge issue because the Chinese are expanding these coal plants. And they also, outside of China, in their Belt Road Initiative and their international lending and investment are, are still building coal plants. So yeah. this, is finance, this is a huge fucking problem. I, I, the couple things I observe about this time is like, I don't know, doesn't it seem to you like this last week or two was like a, almost like a tipping point in climate change coverage in the yes. sense that like in the past it'd be hot and they'd say like in the third paragraph, they'd be like, some scientists say this is climate change. And now it's like, Climate change has brought this extreme heat and it's never going... Like, I feel like something I agree has with that. changed. You know? I agree with that. I don't know if it's a US thing or if it's an international thing, but you're certainly seeing... I mean, Europe is going to get hammered. People are not going to be able to live in like Catalonia and Spain anymore if yeah. these temperatures persist. You've got a lot of countries where people just don't have air conditioning because they've never needed it. So you're having elderly people die all across parts of the country or parts of the planet. So yeah, I agree with you. The climate change element of the coverage is front and center now. And in terms of China, I read that... They approved more coal-fired power plants in 2022 than any year since 2015. Obviously, very bad. But China has drastically increased its uh, use of solar and wind, and they're on track to reach their uh, renewable power capacity goal five years ahead of schedule. So that's sort of the, the yeah. And they're they're you know they're trying to pour money into the renewables to, to like, but in part because it's a profit uh, model for them, right? Yeah. It's a, I think that. What we're going to see going forward that, that might be different because of the experience of the last couple of weeks is, first of all, I do think that there, there was some pressure that kind of released on governments after that COP summit, that climate change summit in Glasgow, because that was like the big five-year check-in after Paris. I just think that this is going to ramp back up because publics are going to be like, what the fuck is going on? Why mm -hmm. aren't you doing more? And so I think you know the next one is <laughs> later this year in the UAE. So, so uh, literally, like totally gross, right? That like a, a massive energy uh, oil and gas uh, producer like that is is having basically a PR exercise. But hey, you know what? If they want to use that to um, to dramatically change their energy model, I'm not hopeful. But you know, but I do think that the pressure should is going to be much greater than it has been. And I also think that this issue of how do you make cities in particular livable uh, in a world of extreme heat. Um, this is going to become a, a like huge challenge too. Like yeah. we tend to think of climate mitigation as you know Pacific Island nations and right. things like this. Miami. No, climate right. mitigation is like can people live in Phoenix? It's been 115 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. for like a couple of weeks now. Like and and what? How do you have to change the nature of cities and public transportation and cooling systems um, in order to make cities livable? You know. Yeah, and and the people dying are the elderly and very young kids. Uh, and that's what you're, who you're protecting by mitigating. But I am hopeful that, look, in the U.S., 
our debates on policy are never about policy. It's about your identity, right? And a yeah. bunch of like lib woke scolds told you that climate change was bad forever. You're probably not ever going to acquiesce and say, okay, you were right. I was wrong. Let's deal with, you know, carbon capture technology you didn't fix it. I don't think that's as much of a problem uh, in other countries because no. their politics are just slightly less stupid. Well, what, you know, I like, it's weird to think back about COVID, <laughs> but like when you read, read these stories about people that, you know, refused to get vaccines and then they like kind of almost refused to take COVID seriously and then they literally like died, you know, and they died still. The, like there are people that are living in places that are being like rendered unlivable by climate change who probably still, because their partisan identity is so wrapped up in being anti-woke climate change right. that they, they won't change. Um, but globally, I mean, this is going to be, you know, a country like India has big choices to make. They need to develop. They need to create a lot of electricity. It is easier to do that by building coal plants and using cheaper forms of energy. And yet India is one of the most acute places in terms of extreme weather and extreme heat. So the will the political balance shift? Will yeah. basically people be like, wait a second, it's like 125 degrees here with like horrible air quality. Like, should we maybe not be building these coal plants? I'm curious whether even outside of this country and like developing uh, parts of the world that, that the balance shifts from just like generate more electricity as cheap as possible to like, are we being part of the solution? I don't know if you feel differently about this issue from having like a, a, a kid, you know, cause like oh, to, God, yeah. to me, it changed the, your time horizon is like 80 years now. And you're kind of like, uh, what, what the fuck? Are Absolutely. We, here? I, I mean, I think that's the hardest thing in all of politics is to get people to change their thinking to long-term from short-term yeah. and the incentive structures for politicians in particular, because, you know, look, if back to my daughter, I mean, if my house was too hot because we didn't have electricity and she was at risk of health issues, I'd be like, build as many coal plants as you need right now yeah. to protect my kid. Yeah, but exactly. long term, you know, like, obviously we want a planet that is livable for all of them. And this is the challenge, right? And and like I, one of the things that we can like continue to think about, I'm going to continue to think about here is that the, there is a bit of a difficult debate inside of progressive geopolitics around democracy versus climate because you know like we have problems with modi we have problems yeah, we with xi jinping we get but like you know in the obama years what reason we bear hug modi was for climate purposes like to do what's necessary in climate you probably have to work with all manner of odious autocrats you know uh yep. around the world or, or people like modi who i don't want to say he's fully in that camp but like are you know ha have those tendencies um the prioritization of climate, if it really is the number one issue, which it appears to be, everybody is going to have to examine trade-offs, not just the people on the right, but the people on the left. Too. For sure. For sure. Uh, speaking of China, Ben, it's not every week that we get a kind of genuine foreign policy mystery, but there's one that's coming out of China <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, I love this. Yeah. So China's foreign minister, this guy, Qin Gang, who has not been seen in public for three weeks is, I think, as of recording right now, still missing. So he's a 57-year-old diplomat. He was China's ambassador to the U.S. before getting promoted to foreign minister back in December. He's tight with Xi Jinping, president. No one has seen the guy since June 25th. The Chinese government says he's been having health issues and he's going to skip some more upcoming meetings. Extreme secrecy like this around Chinese leaders is the norm. I think for a while, like we didn't know Xi Jinping's birth date or you know, anything about his background until he released some sort of like authorized version through state media. But um, I don't know. The speculation is off the charts. I think Taiwan, media in Taiwan believes that he was having an affair with a TV personality and maybe that got him in trouble. Any 
theories out there speak to you and any thoughts on what the impact of this is for, I don't know, Chinese diplomacy, Chinese diplomats? I mean, first of all, it's a weakness in their system that they can't even tell us like what happened to this guy. He's like the foreign minister of like the largest country in the world that wants to be like the center of a new international order. And this guy can't even like show his face in public or they can't even put out like a press release saying he has COVID or whatever the fucking thing is. Can't even RSVP. And, And so like, I don't, I don't, like, I think it hurts them. I really think it hurts their credibility because what if their other foreign minister need to get this guy on the phone too? Like, it's not like there's no business involving China the last few oh, weeks, no, yeah. right? So whatever the thing is, whether it's like an affair or an illness or he pissed somebody off, he's the foreign minister of China. Like, they should at least be able to tell us like what happened to him and what went wrong where he is. And I think it makes their system look bad that they can't. Yeah, I agree. Imagine if Tony Blinken just went missing for three weeks. For three weeks. What would people be saying? <laughs> You're crazy. Yeah. You can be crazy. Um, ben, switching gears hard here. So there, uh, wanna, we've talked a lot about the civil war in Sudan. There's a growing body of reporting now that suggests another wave of ethnic cleansing has happened in the Darfur region of Sudan. And this is happening 20 years after the 2003 genocide that killed hundreds of thousands of Sudanese people. So there's reporters and human rights groups on the ground interviewing survivors who say that these uh, Arab paramilitary groups called the Janjaweed have been attacking and killing non-Arab men, women, burning their homes uh, and driving them out of the country. The violence really exploded in April when the civil war started. Since that time, the Sudanese military has been fighting against a militia group called the RSF. The RSF has its roots in the Janjaweed. Um, so they're, I think, responsible for a lot of this latest violence. It's hard to know how many people are killed, but you know, it, it seems like millions of people have been displaced within the country and uh, an estimate of 700,000 have fled Sudan to neighboring countries. So, you know, Ben, the, the the human consequences of the civil war, I think, were kind of immediately apparent, right? Um, and and concerning well before you saw these reports of ethnic cleansing. But what, what we're hearing about in Darfur has the potential to be catastrophic. There's reports of mass graves. There's satellite imagery of like entire villages burned. And I keep thinking that this is not just a moment that's important for Sudan, which of course it is first and foremost, but kind of the entire human rights community, because yes, like Syria, Libya, the Arab Spring really complicated these conversations about the interventionists, uh, the right to protect and, you know, how to prevent mass atrocities. But the genocide in Darfur in 2003 was supposed to be this never again moment for the world, right? And now it is happening again to the children of Sudanese people who were murdered in the last genocide. And I think the question becomes like, what can or should the world do about it? Because I'm seeing coverage of this and it's hard, like, let's be clear, it's very hard to get to Darfur right now if you're a reporter, like it's incredibly dangerous, but it's not like front page, save Darfur, you know, kind of global issue that we saw 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's kind of, it's interesting time capsule to go back when like, you know, you flagged this, I kind of went back and looked at some of the stuff from the Save Darfur movement. And it, it is this time kind of was like, right, like, I don't know if it was pre-Iraq, but it was like, you know, before that all went completely mm-hmm. off the rails. And um, it was kind of a high watermark for like a movement of people coming together to say we have to prevent atrocities yeah. uh, in other parts of the world. And look, I mean, what's tragic about this is I don't know what to say about what could be done here. I, I mean, either. the only thing I can say is that clearly the the central conflict, like you said, between the RSF and the Sudanese military, 
was inevitably going to unleash all of this kind of tension and all of this kind of uh, factional and ethnic and religious based uh, killing. And I, I think if you, unless you can get that core conflict solved, stopped, ceasefired, your capacity to address the spillover is not going to be there. So there's actually not like a a playbook of, of international intervention in Darfur to stop it, other than can you stop these two warlords from essentially duking it out for the future of the country? And the longer that that civil war happens, the more these kinds of things are going to happen. And I think that's a tragic reality. I also think like if, when people get frustrated about like why don't more people in Africa care about the war in Ukraine, their answer is going to be, why do you guys care so much about the war in Ukraine? The scale of human suffering is basically the same in Sudan, you know, mm -hmm. and there's not. So it, it does, you know, that also kind of plays into this sense that, you know, there, there's a different standard when it happens in the West. And by the way, all this stuff is going to tie together because yeah, uh, the grain grains, scarcity, yeah, yep, right, is yep. going to affect Sudan. Yep. Climate change that we just talked about. Yep. Darfur, the 2003 genocide in Darfur is often referred to as the first climate change war, because a lot of it had to do with the sort of tribal scarcity for grazing fields, et cetera. And so, yeah, these are the kinds of things that are going to happen over again and get worse. And, and just to put a point on it, it's a really, like, it's just, so just take a Putin, like, you know, the, the war and the climate change dynamic are going to drive also migration because millions of people are going to flee Sudan. Many of those people are going to try to come into Europe. That exacerbates what Max and I talked about last week, which is like right-wing populism in Europe, yep. which could lead to far-right governments. That are like this stuff is all, all connected. like connected and and it, and and it all evades easy answers. Yeah, know? it does. Well, speaking of migration, uh, we saw this week that Tunisia and the European Union have signed a deal to prevent migration from Tunisia to parts of Europe, especially Italy. The EU basically is going to give Tunisia like $120 million to stop smuggling, harden their border, and return migrants to where they came from, I guess, essentially, or at least, I guess, kick, expel them from Tunisia. Um, in exchange, it sounds like Tunisia just cracks down on migrant boats leaving uh, from Tunisian ports. Tunisia's president recently accused migrants of coming to his country as part of a plot to change the demographics in his country. Sounds like this guy was yeah. watching too much Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So Was he at the Freedom Breakfast? He might have been in Des Moines. Faith and Freedom. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see him freedom. there. Yeah. I'll check the YouTubes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, like this is the latest example of basically Western countries uh, paying off yeah. other countries to prevent migration and sort of solve their political problem. And in this case, doing so with a president in Tunisia who was elected in 2019 and since then has seized as much power as he possibly can from parliaments uh, and the courts. So he's becoming even more authoritarian. Well, yeah, that's the key point, right? Is that like this guy like has you know, been criticized by people inside of Europe and other places for essentially, you know, unraveling Tunisia's post-Arab Spring experiment in democracy. And yet, what is the message of this deal? It said, we care more about you stopping these migrants than we care about Tunisian democracy. And the European model has increasingly been, you know, paying off people on the periphery to try to stop this uh, influx. And to your conversation with Max last week, I think the two leaders who were in Tunisia to sign this deal were what's her name from Italy and yeah. the, the Dutch guy you guys talked about. Yeah, yeah, Mark Rutte. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Rutte. like th th these are... Maloney. Sorry. Yeah. Mo well, yeah, Maloney. Not Mussolini, Maloney. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah, this is this is like where global politics are at. You know, like uh, we just have, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't do as much as you can to help the people you can 
um, who are in de- desperate circumstances and, and migrating. But it it does mean it's just going to be a. At some point, uh, my argument is they need a much bigger solution to the migration crisis. That that is not like the stopgap measures, but Definitely. like clearly people are not ready to use that degree of of imagination. Yet. No. Uh, speaking of uh, human rights concerns, uh, over the weekend, Iranian officials confirmed that the so-called morality police were back on the streets and harassing Iranian citizens again, mostly women, but also men too, uh, for not dressing conservatively enough or wearing the hijab. This comes nearly a year. Uh, after a member or members of the morality police murdered a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini. That led to months of protests and promises by the regime to reform or curtail the the, uh, morality police's activities. These goons will reportedly now have a different name. I saw a report that they're going to wear body cameras. I don't believe that's going to do anything. But I do think the, the real question, Ben, is whether these protests explode again like they did after Masamini's murder, because The Guardian reported that uh, up to 10% of women are now not following these sort of strict morality police enforced rules. And it's become more common for women to post photos without the uh, without hair, their hair covered on social media, et cetera. So, I mean, I think like you could see another explosion here in Iran. I think that's right. I mean, because on the one hand, it's not surprising that this regime is just cracking down and hanging on. They're not reformers. Remember, they said they were going to disband the morality people. Full shit, they're yeah. full of shit. They're, they're, they're going to hunker down, crack down, and then come back just as ugly as they've ever been. But the big but here is that just because that revolution or you know uprising or se- series of protests didn't result in like the immediate collapse of the Iranian uh, Islamic Republic does not mean that this is over. And I think mm-hmm. that like this will flare up periodically. There'll be some incident that flares it up again. Or like, as we said, the Supreme Leader could die and then the succession crisis could ensue. So I think that we're going to see this kind of tug of war for for probably a period of years where the the regime cannot put that back in a box. Like no. they can't make those younger people or ed- people writ large okay with this. Um, so they can clamp down and hold the lid on and then the lid will pop off and then they'll try to put it on. And and at some point, I think that will lead to a, to some change in Iran. Yeah, I think so too. It's just going to take years, I think. Yeah. Two quick additional things. The first is you did a great interview. Was it last year, I think, with uh, Jason Resign and yes. Yegi Resign? Yes. Yeah. They talked a lot about their experience with yeah. the morality police. We did a podcast with Jason called 544 Days, which is about him being held hostage and Yegi too by the Iranian regime. It is now available on all podcast platforms. Before, it was just on Spotify. So check out 544 Days if you haven't heard. It's really great. Also, there were reports that the US is sending more military assets, including a destroyer, F-35s, and F-16s to the Persian Gulf in response to these incidents where Iranian vessels have been harassing merchant ships. It's funny. This is one of those things, Ben, where I got some texts from like normie friends, like what's going on here? Does this mean there's a war, et cetera? And I think we just wanted to raise it to say like, yeah, it's not good when the Iranians are harassing random tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, but it's also the kind of shit they do all the time. And we have military assets in that region all the time. So don't get super worried. Yeah. There's there's always like a degree of cat and mouse and harassment. And then we deploy a bunch of heavy you know, big ships there to yeah. intimidate them. Some I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that there, there's a flashpoint in Iran right now. It's not great. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean it's going to lead to any escalation. Yeah. Two more quick things for the interview. So uh, I don't know if you saw this, Ben, but I saw a report in the Financial Times that said that millions of U.S. military emails 
have been accidentally sent. I saw this. To the yeah, it's country amazing. of Mali. Yeah, yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> because yeah. of typos. So here's what's happening. People are sending these emails to the .ml domain instead of .mil domain. That is the ending of all U.S. military email addresses. These messages have reportedly contained sensitive information, travel details for officials, tax returns. There is some random Dutch guy who for the last decade has been managing Molly's country domain, the .ml. He has been collecting these messages. He's sitting on 117,000 of them. He's trying to like sound the alarm to the U.S. military because on July 17th, he had to hand control of the domain over to the Mali's government. They're tight with the Russians, yeah, for the example. Wagner group. Yeah, like none of this is classified, yeah. but here's one. Uh, this is from the FT story. One misdirected email this year included the travel plans for General James McConville, the chief of staff of the U.S. Army, and his delegation for then forthcoming visit to Indonesia in May. The email included a full list of room numbers, the itinerary for McConville and 20 others, as well as details of the collection of McConville's room key at the Grand Hyatt Jakarta, where he received a VIP upgrade to a grand suite. So that's a typo. Oops. Would that guy know that he got, I guess, like he, does he know he gets the upgrade? Like what did, did, like, do they get the emails or do do these emails just disappear? Like, like they're gone. Well, I think they would normally just go into the ether, but this Dutch dude created some way to like collect them all. But how did these hundred, how did these people not realize like over time that like their emails weren't getting to where, it's just interesting to me that like, if I'd sent all my emails to like the wrong server and never gotten responses for a while, I would have been, uh, I mean, do you, you, you mentioned the, the, the most alarming thing, which is like Molly is one of those places where the Wagner group under you give any progression, like basically was beginning to function as this kind of like Praetorian guard security service for the government. So like probably not great if the Wagner guys are like going to get their hands on all this stuff, but like yeah. they might also be busy. We don't really know who the people, the Russians and Mali work for anymore. You know, maybe they're going up to Belarus to go to the summer camp up there that Progrosin has. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, unless you think, well, this is like a silly alarmist example. Like we know, for example that the Iranians are very, very mad that the Trump administration assassinated their top general and would yeah. love a crack at one of ours. And if yeah. you can figure out where they're going to be, when, and who's going to get the room key, like that's that's pretty helpful info. It is. You know, I'm, you know, I'm sure if you canvas this, there's stuff too that, like it's it's interesting for people if like to see oh, who is so-and-so meeting and like what are the dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's useful. But, yeah, definitely useful. But you also have to think on classified email, someone could get their hands on that anyway. For sure. Yeah, yeah and they probably have. I saw that Richard Engel, uh, there's a new NBC documentary coming out about Prigozhin that he's been working on for a couple of years. So that's, that's worth Yeah, and out. Richard was down in, in the Central African Republic yep. too. So he in was Syria. like actually following the stories, like not just in Russia, but down in yeah, in the Middle East and in yeah. Africa. I heard him interview talking about it. I've not seen it yet, but I Yeah, he's pretty amped about it. Like, you know, he- um, Yeah, he was way ahead of it. I mean, I think he's pitched this like two or three years ago to the NBC brass and they were like, who is this loser? What are you talking about? And then all of a sudden it's like the biggest story in yeah, the world. Yeah, suddenly it's good that he has that like archival footage of being with a bunch of Russian dudes in the Central African Republic. Yeah. Know? I think um, Prigozhin, I think he sent Prigozhin a request for a comment and Prigozhin basically threatened to kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, I actually saw that. It was really funny. It was, it was like this really chilling, like, fuck off uh, yeah. comment. Yeah, it was good. Uh, anyway, last thing, Ben. So you uh, were excited about the story about a mystery object in Australia. What do we know about this hunk of metal on the beach here? So I, I just love these Australian stories because they too. just keep coming back. And so this one is like, there's a giant piece of metal that is on the beach in Australia, right? Near Perth. Near Perth. And nobody knows what this is, how it got there. It's really fucking big. There are all these theories now. Like one theory was that this is space junk. It fell out of space. 
but it doesn't bear the markings of something that like passed through the atmosphere. It doesn't have burns on it. Then there were other theories that this is from a plane, like it could be a piece of a plane. And so maybe it's that long lost plane that took off like from Malaysia or something and never landed that Wolf Blitzer talked about for like every day for uh, months. But like then it didn't match that. Like is this like my theory is, is this like, you know, the opening scene in 2001 Space Odyssey when like the you know the the black slab appears before the the apes and they get into is this some oh, like yeah, yeah. is this some some greater intelligence signaling us you know with like a hunk of metal in australia like i want australians you are the best people to figure out this mystery like Lock it inter- down. interesting stuff seems to happen on your beaches whether it's like naked people running into the woods or like you know scott morrison shitting himself like i we just need our, our people out there to solve this and and tell us tell us what 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 this is it know? does seem like this object lends itself to doing mushrooms on the beach just look at that object it's naked. pretty big yeah. right yeah uh there was a guy quoted in one of these stories about it someone who lives near the beach said that like some people were worried about the thing, and then he said there's like twenty or thirty people at the site. Like a bunch of kids were building sandcastles around <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Just, like, don't give a fuck. yeah, yeah. There's like a, it's like a Bluey episode, you <laughs> yeah. know, to come. You know, I heard there's new Blueys coming out. They dropped ten new Blueys. How uh, are they? Cody Keenan was psyched. We binged them uh, before noon on the day they came out. That's the thing. Yeah, it was is like just a savage binge. It was I, great. They're, the Blueys getting into themes too. Uh, like they're they're taking on issues now. It's good. I, yeah. I, like, I like that. You know, yeah. I, my daughter is not. Uh, like she'll like be she'll stare at a screen. Yeah, of no, course you yeah, would, right? It's like yeah. this magical thing on the wall yeah. that like flashes photos at you. But like yeah. we can't, she can't watch stuff yet. Yeah, no, it it it, it it'll. Don't worry, that's coming. You have the rest of her life to deal it, with screens. It was the only time I wanted was on the plane. We it's had, very uh, useful on the plane. We had some brutal travel delays. Very very useful on the plane. Use that. Yeah. Okay, that's it for us for the news. Uh, but stick around after this quick break because uh, I'm going to talk to Amir T-Bone from Haaretz. We talk about. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu's efforts to uh, gut Israel's Supreme Court. We also talk about President Biden inviting Netanyahu to Washington, D.C. for a meeting and how uh, protesters reacted to that. So stick around. (laughs) Check it out. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. I am very excited to welcome to the show Amir Tibone. He is the diplomatic correspondent for Haaretz newspaper. I'm a subscriber, by the way, a paying subscriber, so it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. How's my pronunciation? 
good pronunciation and the most important thing tell me it's a you know pleasure and an honor to have you as a subscriber so thank you for supporting the work of our well you guys really do great work um i, I am thank genuinely you. a subscriber have been for a while in part because you have done such great coverage of uh israeli prime minister bibi netanyahu's efforts to ram through all these changes to the israeli court system the judicial system uh your newspaper has called it a judicial coup we have covered that a lot over the past few months. There have been these massive uh, weekly protests, I think, for seven months now. Members of the military have refused to report to duty. There's been international outcry. Can you just remind listeners what the proposed judicial changes are and what you think the impact would be? Sure. So basically, this government that Netanyahu is leading, he came back to power just over half a year ago. It's the most right-wing, most extreme, most religious government in Israeli history. And it came right in with a plan to completely change the balance of power between the authorities and the country. Today in Israel, we have a very thin system of checks and balances, not as developed and deep as the checks and balances that you guys have in the United States with the Constitution and two branches of Congress and a lot of power to local governments in the different states. Here in Israel, basically, the government and the legislator, the Knesset, our parliament, in a way, act as one because the government always has a parliamentary majority. Um, the local authorities have very little power. Tel Aviv is a very liberal city, but it cannot dictate its own policy separate from the more conservative religious Jerusalem. And so basically, the only real check on the power of the government that exists today in Israel, unfortunately, is the Israeli Supreme Court. And that's a problematic situation because we, I think in a democracy, and you guys are dealing with some of that as well, mm -hmm. we don't want the court to have too much power. Right. Um, but at the same time, we also don't want the government to have too much power. And so there is really a case in Israel, a young country, 75 years old, to do some kind of reform in the balance of power between the authorities. The problem is that this government, instead of trying to do some genuine reform and much needed changes, is trying to push through a plan that would give the government unlimited powers, remove this obstacle of judicial review from the Supreme Court, and basically make it impossible to have any kind of review over government policy and majority legislation. Uh, now, to give practical examples, uh, in Israel, most of the progress that has happened in recent decades on issues like LGBT rights, women's rights, equality for minorities, I'm not speaking now about Palestinians in the occupied territories. We can talk about that in a second. I'm sure you'll ask Tommy. But when we talk about the Arab citizens of Israel, 20% of the country's population, a lot of the progress that has happened on these fronts, you know, minority rights, women's rights, LGBT, human rights in general, came through landmark Supreme Court decisions in Israel. Mm -hmm. And not through legislation, because usually we have religious parties or right-wing parties in our coalition, and it's difficult to legislate on these issues. And Netanyahu's current coalition, again, very right-wing, very religious, views the Supreme Court, rightly so, as a liberalizing force in Israeli society. And so it wants to weaken the court, give all the power to the government. And a lot of people here in Israel are deeply worried about that. And these are the hundreds of thousands that you've been seeing out in the streets protesting. Even now, as we're recording this podcast, by the way, there are massive demonstrations in Tel Aviv tonight, people blocking the main highways. So at the end of the day, we can go into the technicalities, this piece of legislation. But the main question is, what kind of limitation or check will there be on the power of the government? 
This yeah. is what the struggle here is all about. And, and, you know, you mentioned the protests are happening as we speak. I mean, it's been an incredible success story for protesters, for collective action, for the power of, you know, organizations and, and people coming together. I have read that the next couple of weeks will be critical in efforts to ram through this judicial coup legislation, despite the fact that Israeli citizens and the protesters basically fought these changes off for the last several months. Is that accurate? Like what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks that's so important? So originally the government's plan was shock and awe. They won the election that we had here in Israel last year. By the way, they won even though they did not get a majority of the votes. Yeah. That's the situation you, you know the guys feeling, may yeah. be familiar with yeah, exactly. not the best. because of but, but by the way i respect the election result even though again there are these issues because of how our system works that the government did not win a majority of the vote but it has a majority of the seats and they should be able to rule and lead the country you know all good but when they won the election uh and the shock of having netanyahu return with such an extreme government they said now we can do anything we want and they tried to push through all these different bills that weaken the judicial system and empower the government all at once. And they did not anticipate the very strong response from the Israeli public, from sectors in Israel that usually don't get involved in political protests, like the tech sector, which is very important for the Israeli economy. I mean, when we talk about the miracle of Israel's economy in the last two decades, it's mostly high tech companies. They've been on the front lines of this struggle. Uh, the, in the military, reservists, people from the Air Force, from the Special Forces, um, from top intelligence units are saying we're not going to serve if this passes because we made a contract with a democratic state of Israel to serve and defend. And now we're being asked to serve in a country that is slipping away from democracy. And we're seeing it really all over the place. And then after one specific night, four months ago, in which Netanyahu tried to fire his defense minister, a member of his own party who had the chutzpah, as we say, to come and say, you know, BB, this may not be a great idea. It's tearing the military apart. Let's stop. So Netanyahu tried to fire him. Hundreds of thousands took to the streets, and Netanyahu said, okay, we're halting the legislation. But they didn't get, give up on the dream of absolute power. I mean, what kind of politician would give up on that dream ever, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're trying to do now is what we call here in Israel the salami method. They're trying to cut it into pieces. Instead of pushing everything at once, they're going to do it slice by slice. And they have one piece of legislation that's going to be up for a vote in the next few days, basically. But by the end of next week, it will be determined that is going to severely limit the Supreme Court's ability to conduct judicial review over government decisions, not legislation, but governmental policies and decisions. For example, one just quick you know, way to, to show what it's all about. As you remember, Tommy Netanyahu himself is a criminal defendant mm -hmm. facing trial in the Jerusalem District Court these days in three cases of corruption. He wants to fire Israel's attorney general, who is leading these cases against him in court. Today, if he would try to fire her, the attorney general, the Supreme Court of Israel would very likely determine that this is an extremely unreasonable decision. It's not a piece of legislation. It's a governmental policy decision and would strike it out. They want to cancel the court's ability to use what we call here the reasonableness standard for judging governmental decisions. And the last sentence I will say about this, that like on so many of these issues around this judicial coup, overhaul, reform, we have different uh, language for it here in Israel. Uh, I personally see an argument in favor of some kind of reform on this question of the reasonableness standard mm -hmm. and the court's ability to you know, review governmental decisions. I, I understand that there's a case to maybe limit it or change it, 
But what they want to do is extreme. They want to cancel it. They want to put the government above judicial review. And that will lead to unreasonable and dangerous decisions. Yeah, it does seem like they could just run roughshod. I like that you call it the the salami method. Here in the U.S., we've lost the ability to legislate, so we just jam everything together and pass these (laughs) omnibus bills. I think you call it the uh, turducken method, maybe for lack of a better term. So Joe Biden, president, uh, is meeting with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, today, uh, July 18th. The Israeli presidency, it's a largely ceremonial position, but Herzog is also addressing a joint session of Congress. Um, On Monday... Uh, around this visit, uh, Biden invited Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to a meeting in the U.S. for the first time since Bibi got power back most recently in December with this new right-wing coalition that you described. Uh, the two reportedly had a long and warm phone call. I think that came from the Israeli side. Not long ago, Biden called Netanyahu's coalition extremist. Um, what was the reaction to that outreach and that invitation from Biden from the activists on the streets trying to stop these judicial changes? I think there was surprise and also some disappointment because uh, in the previous round, when we got to that you know, point of decision, when Netanyahu tried to fire the defense minister and hundreds of thousands took to the streets, Biden intervened and actually told Netanyahu, you really have to stop this. Uh, and I think Biden didn't do it just because he loves Israel, which is true. Joe Biden loves the state of Israel. He's considers himself a Zionist and has supported Israel throughout his career. Mm -hmm. And unlike some opportunistic politicians in your country, I think he really cares about Israel in a way that it's not just about the politics behind it, but he wants Israel to succeed and thrive, which also means he wants to see peace with all of Israel's neighbors, including the Palestinians and the resolution of the occupation. But to put that aside, uh, his deep lovers, I think last time he also intervened because this plan can also harm American interests. And I want to give you two quick examples about that. First of all, the Supreme Court in Israel today plays a lot of times the role of a babysitter for the far right and the religious extremists. Netanyahu actually, for many years, enjoyed that because his crazy coalition partners would advance all kinds of crazy legislation and decisions. And he didn't have to stop it himself because he knew the Supreme Court would come and intervene. Right. If you take away the power of the Supreme Court to stop these crazy decisions, unreasonable decisions, um, legislation that hurts human rights, who's going to be the babysitter, Tommy? Right. Who's going to stop these far-right actions? It's going to be the United States. Every crazy initiative of the far-right in Israel will end up on the desk of the American ambassador and the American secretary of state and maybe the president. So I think there's a clear interest there for Biden to stop it. And the second reason, which I also think is important, the main theme of the Biden presidency, as I see, is the protection of liberal democracy at home and abroad. Mm -hmm. This is what's driving his battle against Donald Trump since the previous election. This was his message for the US midterms. I know some of his advisors told him, don't talk so much about democracy. And he insisted, and I think it worked out surprisingly well this is is what's driving it's you know his policy in ukraine his confrontational approach on you know china taiwan and so he is committed to protecting liberal democracy what would it mean for his legacy and also in terms of policy consistency if a close ally like israel under his watch would slide away from liberal democracy toward the you know victor orban style illiberal post-democracy government. I think that would be harmful to him as well. Yeah. So I think that's why he intervened. And I think this time around, what we're seeing is perhaps an attempt by Biden to, on the one hand, keep the message 
that he's opposed to these changes and he wants to see consensus in Israel and compromise. But also, I think, push back against some Republican talking points that what he's doing is against Israel. And of course, that feeds into some of the tensions within the Democratic Party with the more progressive lawmakers who are much more critical of Israel. And I think at some point they said in the White House, okay, you know, let's have this meeting. Maybe it will be at the UN. Maybe even if Netanyahu slows down a bit with the legislation, maybe he'll even come to the White House. And we'll put this issue of the visit behind us. But I don't think they're going to give up on the policy disagreement here, because again, there are also American interests at stake in this issue. Yeah, I think that's probably a, a good, the right analysis and accurate analysis. I mean, you know, it does, you could argue for just saying, all right, let's make the invite. We don't have to actually schedule a date anytime soon. We can let this thing pend a little bit and kind of like get this annoying, irritating question off the table. You know, I think what frustrates people like me is you're also hearing about the administration doing an enormous amount of work trying to broker a diplomatic agreement between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is not something I oppose on its face, but it would be an enormous gift to be in Yahoo in the middle of this judicial coup. And I guess what I wonder is, you know, when, when Obama was president, when I was in the White House, it seemed clear to us that Netanyahu enjoyed, you know, giving him the middle finger, probably saw it as politically beneficial uh, at times, especially on Iran. Then you had Bibi and Trump, who are just thick as thieves and best friends, and Trump gave Bibi basically everything he asked for. Now, I mean, I, I agree with you. I do think Joe Biden has a genuine affinity and love of Israel. He seems to like Netanyahu, despite no one else liking Netanyahu. Um, but I'm wondering, <laughs> what do you think the politics are in Israel now for Netanyahu of working for or against the U.S.? That's a really smart question. I think Netanyahu has failed to poison the Israeli public opinion against Biden, you know, and succeeded at the time against Obama. Yeah, I think this is one of his political achievements at the time to turn Barack Obama, the American president who gave Israel the largest amount ever of security assistance, an American president who only once during his eight years in office uh, did not use the veto in the UN Security Council for Israel's benefit. And even that was basically two weeks before he left the White House. Right. It was a total joke to turn him into some kind of an enemy of Israel. Um, and I think with Biden, he did not succeed so far in doing that. Most Israelis like President Biden. They view him as a friend of Israel. Even, by the way, people who would have preferred Donald Trump to remain president in the U.S., I don't think they hate Joe Biden hmm. as much. There is a fragment within Netanyahu's party, the Likud, and, you know, the more right wing that, that really don't like Biden and feed into all the crazy, stupid conspiracy theories that you have from uh, the far right in your country. Yep. But that's not the general public opinion. So I don't think the confrontation with Biden is good for Netanyahu. I think he does want to meet the president. He, don't, he does want to show Israelis that he's still respected and can garner, you know, some kind of diplomatic achievements abroad. On the Saudi issue, you're absolutely right. It would be a huge achievement for Netanyahu. And it would change the trajectory of his current political standing because his government is very unpopular right now. It won the election, but there are a lot of people who are disappointed with their focus on this judicial overhaul and say the government should focus more on issues like cost of living, inflation. You guys, you know, yeah. feel some of it too. Although I heard there were good news recently, and you know, Bidenomics seems to be working. Um, but you know, these are big issues here as well, and so I think. This Saudi agreement would really help Bibi. I'm not sure how much it would help Biden. No. To me, that is a bit of a mystery. I mean, he would basically be emboldening two guys that don't really want to see him reelected. You know, oh, yeah. Netanyahu and MBS 
I mean, Netanyahu, I think, likes Biden personally, but still would prefer a Republican in the White House. MBS, I think, completely hates Joe Biden. And so what does he get by empowering and legitimizing these two guys right before the re-election and giving them more legitimacy and more power, which I don't think they will hesitate to use against him. I mean, Netanyahu has shown in the past that he has no second thoughts about intervening in American politics, including in presidential years. That's a big risk right there. I mean, yeah, you would get that headline about a win and an achievement for three or four days, but you would give a lot of standing to BB and MBS to later criticize him over Iran and other issues before the election. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman is uh, a sociopath sitting on several trillion dollars, uh, and he's basically, according to news reports, asking for a domestic <laughs> nuclear program. So yeah, it seems like the U.S. would be giving up a lot to uh, help two people whose uh, values at the moment I don't think are totally in line with Joe Biden's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, and I guess you know I can see again the the idea that it would also be considered a win and an achievement. And when he runs against Donald Trump and Trump says I did the Abraham Accords, Biden could say I did Israeli Saudi peace. You tell me if that actually decides American elections. Uh, I'm not sure this is what the 2024 election is going to be about. Yeah, no, I don't think it is either. I think there are some <laughs> states and communities on the margins where it's extremely beneficial. But uh, I agree. I think Joe Biden is likely to do well with U.S. Jewish voters. Um. You said at the top, you know, well, uh, you know, your your conversation about Israeli democracy didn't include the treatment of the Palestinian people in the occupied territories, and I'm sure we would talk about that later. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even prepare a question about the peace talks or the efforts to get a two-state solution going, because it just feels like there's absolutely nothing happening, and all we're reading about is, you know, these uh, the military raids in Janine or challenges with settler violence. So I, I guess, I mean, I, I put it to you, I mean, where do you think the prospects are for any kind of even dialogue to begin between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis? Obviously, it's very low. I mean, the political reality in Israel and also on the Palestinian side makes it impossible. Because here in Israel, we have this far-right government in which Netanyahu is kind of like the moderate element. Right. I mean, that's yeah. crazy in itself. But you look at the people around him, they're not exactly partners for any kind of peace talks. And on the Palestinian side, it's divided between Mahmoud Abbas the aging Palestinian president sitting in the city of Ramallah in the occupied territories. Basically, he's a, you know, a mayor uh, with some uh, uh, contractual responsibilities given to him by Israel and the United States to maintain calm. And you have Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which is designated as a terrorist organization for Israel. And so there's really not much you can do about it. And I think one of the interesting trends to follow and this is more in the academic world right now, but it's been spilling into the world of diplomacy as well. And I think at some point it will reach politics too. There is a growing discussion about the notion that the two-state solution, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter because it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, It's dead. And you need to think about alternatives. And we had a visit here in Israel about a month ago by Ban Ki-moon. You remember that name? Mm -hmm. He used to be the UN Secretary yeah, General sure last did. decade. And he came here um, for a visit and he finished it by saying, I am seeing a one state reality on the ground. I don't believe it's going to be divided anymore. There's basically the Israeli population, the Palestinian population. It's all one piece of land controlled to different levels by Israel. And we need to start talking about what that means, this one state reality, which will not be broken into two. And that opens up the door for discussion of one state with equal rights. Now, I have to tell you as an Israeli citizen, 
Um, I find that a very, very problematic situation because it would definitely mean a huge change in what it means even for Israel's existence. And I still believe the two-state solution is in Israel's best interest and it's where we should try to be. But we also have to be realistic and look at what's happening on the ground and the political forces shaping our reality. And to just keep saying two-state solution, two-state solution, okay, it's the right words to say, but right now, is that even relevant anymore? That is the big discussion that is starting to happen. It hasn't really reached the political ranks yet. I think everybody's terrified to open it up here yeah. in Israel and over in Washington. But usually these things that start in the academic world and in the media and, you know, in the diplomatic ranks at some point would also have to become political questions. Yeah, no, you're right. It's much easier politically to say, oh, we need to pick up where Oslo left off and continue the negotiations and get to two states rather than talk about what a one state solution could mean in terms of rights for the Palestinian people or the makeup uh, of Israel and its existence as a Jewish state. Things get a lot more challenging, those conversations. Last question for you, uh, and thank you again for doing this. I know it's late there. Uh, you have a report out today that suggests that in addition to hoarding classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump is also- I, I knew you would have to ask about this. <laughs> this is an amazing story. The president, did he steal these uh, Israeli antiquities? He's refusing to give them back. What, what the hell is going on here? The, the, the Trump antiquity story. So. Uh, we're not um, saying in our story, this is, you know, first reporter on Haaretz and it's been quoted in many places since. We're not saying that Donald Trump stole anything or that even that he's hiding it, but we are putting out a set of facts that is really interesting to follow. In 2019, uh, toward the end of that year, these uh, Israeli archaeological artifacts were sent by the Israeli Antiquities Authority with, you know, authorization to Washington for some kind of event at the White House. Eventually, they were not presented in the White House, and then there was this whole debate about how they would be sent back to Israel. By the time that was figured out, COVID arrived, right. and it was very difficult to send someone from Israel to pick them up securely. And they ended up at the hands of this big donor, American Jewish donor of the Israeli Antiquities Authority, and over time, they kind of lost track about it. And a few months ago, the um, officials in Israel who deal with this found out that these antiquities are now in Mar-a-Lago, They've been there for a while. Um, it's not clear if Donald Trump is fully aware that, you know, what this thing is and that it's in his premises, but it's definitely there. And there have been attempts through all kinds of diplomatic channels to return them to Israel, which so far have failed. Um, and that raises a lot of questions, Tommy. I mean, could this be an Indiana Jones movie, for example? <laughs> I was so thinking uh, National Treasure, where we're, we're trying to find the, <laughs> steal the Constitution. Exactly. exactly. Will they send the Mossad? You know, the FBI has already visited. Is it time to send the Mossad to Mar-a-Lago? My guess is they've um, already and, been, and, but good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they have. And and maybe they're using, some of it is old candles from like 2,000 years ago. They must be priceless. Maybe, listen, incredible, but maybe he's using those candles at night to read the classified documents <laughs> that he has there about the Israeli <laughs> nuclear program. I mean, that would be you know, complete circle. That's a good call. Maybe you guys should send uh, Nicholas Cage because he seems like he's sorted out issues like this <laughs> in the past. Uh, Amir Tibone, thank you so much for doing the show. Everyone should uh, follow you on Twitter and also subscribe to Haaretz because, you know, you need a more progressive view of the media that uh, Bibi Netanyahu hasn't tried to pay off. You know, it's important to have those voices out there. So thank you. Thank you, Tommy. I'll take the endorsement and thanks again for having me. Thanks again to Amir T-Bone for, uh, for joining the show and uh, to all our friends in Australia. 
Yeah. The truth is out there. Get to the, the bottom. The truth of is it. out there. Get on it. Um, th- I do want to say like uh, two plugs, Tommy. Like mm. uh, Chris Miller, who we've had on the show a bunch. Great guy. His book dropped today. Oh, nice. Uh, the, What's it called? The War Came to Us. The War it's Came a, to Us. Basically, the Ukrainian view of what's happened. And Chris has been there since 2014. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously uh, not just somebody who came in after the full scale invasion. And then did you read this John Lee Anderson piece about Haiti and the New Yorker? No. It is like, you know, I mean, it's the piece that somebody needed to write and John Lee Anderson's like the right guy to write. Yeah, like, it's really just good. really heartbreaking. It's um, Oh, Haiti held hostage. Yeah, so, yeah. All yeah. right, I'm in. Yeah. Great plugs. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah, see ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mazuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. Want to tell you about a new podcast you might enjoy? It's called Search Engine. In each episode, reporter PJ Vogt tries to answer every question he has about the world. No question too big, no question too small. Questions like, why are drug dealers putting fentanyl in everything, even though it's killing their customers? Or, is my local sushi restaurant a part of an international scam? Yikes. And did anyone ever figure out where Sam Bankman-Fried hid all that money? Also, how sad are the monkeys at the zoo? If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, we think you'll like the show. Search Engine with PJ Vote, an Odyssey podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.